0: So today we're going to be continuing the series of questions and answers. This is Maja Nikaya 44, the shorter series of questions and answers. Thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Then the lay follower Visaka went to the Bikuni Dhammadina. So the bikuni Dhammadina was an arahat, and Visaka was an anagami. Dhammadina was Visaka's former wife before she became a bikuni. And the story goes is that Visaka had gone to visit the Buddha. And he was gone all night listening to the Buddha's discourse. And as he was listening to it, he became an anagami. Next morning he came back home. And he was very silent, very radiant, happy, relaxed. Didn't say a word. And his wife thought, what's going on? And then when they were ready to go to sleep together... He decided to sleep on the floor. He didn't want to sleep with her on the same bed. And she thought, this is strange. Maybe I did something to bother him or upset him. The next morning she asked uh, what happened. And he says that he's let go of all craving, all lust, everything is gone. After listening to the Buddha's discourse. So she said, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to check out the Buddha's discourse. So she went there and listened to the Buddha and was inspired to become a Bhikkhuni. And Visaka was quite happy about this. And then she became an arhat. So now here is Visaka coming to Dhammadina, asking her questions. And after paying homage to her, he sat down at one side and asked her, Lady, identity, identity is said. What is called identity by the Blessed One? Friend Visaka, these five aggregates affected by clinging are called identity by the Blessed One. That is the material form aggregate affected by craving and clinging. The feeling aggregate affected by craving and clinging. The perception aggregate affected by craving and clinging. The formations aggregate affected by craving and clinging. And the consciousness aggregate affected by craving and clinging. These five aggregates affected by craving and clinging are called identity by the Blessed One. Saying, "Good lady," the lay follower Visaka delighted and rejoiced in the Bikuni Damadina's words. Then he asked her a further question, "Lady, origin of identity. Origin of identity is said. What is called the origin of identity by the Blessed One, friend Visaka? It is craving, which brings renewal of being." is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for being, and craving for non-being. This is called the origin of identity. Lady, cessation of identity. Cessation of identity is said. What is called the cessation of identity by the blessed one? Friend Visaka, it is the remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting of that same craving. This is called the cessation of identity by the blessed one. Lady, the way leading to the cessation of identity. The way leading to the cessation of identity is said. What is called the way leading to the cessation of identity by the Blessed One? Friend Visaka, it is just this noble eightfold path. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So we're going through the Four Noble Truths again, and we're applying it to understanding how identity arises. Identity is said to be when the mind takes personal any of the five aggregates. Sees the body as self. Sees feeling, experience as self. Sees perception as self. Sees intentions as self. Or sees awareness as self. And that seeing it as self, that personalizing it, taking it personally, is that craving which leads to renewal of being. Renewal of habitual tendencies. Renewal of existence. Of identity concretized into the sense of self. So that is the origin of identity. Identification with the five aggregates. The cessation of identity Identity is to let go of that identification. Noticing it, using the eightfold path. How do you use the eightfold path? How do you apply the eightfold path? Six R's. Six R's. You guys are learning. Good. <laughs> so using the six R's, applying right effort... You let go of the notion of self, personalizing things. Now here's an interesting question he asks. Lady, is that craving and clinging the same as the five aggregates affected by craving and clinging? Or is the craving and clinging something apart from the five aggregates affected by craving and clinging? In other words, we say these aggregates are affected by craving and clinging these aggregates can be affected, have the potential of being influenced through craving and clinging. But is the craving and clinging the same or different from the five aggregates? This is what she says. Friend Visaka, the craving and clinging is neither the same as these five aggregates affected by craving and clinging, nor is craving and clinging something apart from the five aggregates affected by craving and clinging. Like I said, Arhats never give you a straight answer. But she says, it is the desire and lust in regard to the five aggregates affected by craving and clinging, that is the craving and clinging there. The desire and lust in regard to the five aggregates. This form feels good to me, so I identify with it. This form is painful to me, so I want to push it away. The I comes up. This experience is pleasurable or unpleasant, and then there's an identity tied to it. This perception. So it's the identification with it. There is a sutta called satta sutta. S-A-T-T-A, sutta, satta sutta. Sutta actually is the Pali for sattva, which means Being in terms of a person, being in terms of, you know, a being, not like to be something. It's an actual being. So the question that's given to the Buddha is what is being? What is the definition of being? Not to be, but what is the definition of a being? And the Buddha says the definition of a being is whenever there is attachment in reference to the five aggregates whenever the mind takes personally and identifies with form feeling perception intention and or awareness so the question i pose based on that is okay that means there is no more being when you let go of identification So the Arahat, are they a being or are they a (laughs) non-being? Could you say neither? Then what are they? Right. So the Arahat realizes that there was no self to begin with. So the mind doesn't land on being or being a non-being. Lady, how does identity view come to be? So this is Sakaya Ditti. How does the sense of self view come to be? How does the belief in a personal self come to be? How does the intellectual attachment to the I, me, myself come to be? Here, friend Visaka, an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, regards material form as self, or self as possessed of material form, or material form as in-self, or self as in-material form. He regards feeling as self, or self as possessed of feeling, or feeling as in-self, or self as in feeling. He regards perception as self, or self as possessed of perception, or self as in, or perception as in self, or self as in perception. He regards formations as self, or self as possessed of formations, or formations as in self, or self as in formations. He regards awareness as self, or self as possessed of awareness or awareness as in self or self as in awareness these are the twenty types of self view that arise the five aggregates multiplied by the four self views so the four self views is each of these five aggregates are considered as self that these five aggregates are me or That there is a self that possesses these five aggregates. Or that the self resides in the five aggregates. Or that the five aggregates reside in some kind of overarching self. That is how identity view comes to be. Lady, how does identity view not come to be? Dear friend Visaka, a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, who has regard for true men and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, does not regard material form as self, or self as possessed of material form, or material form as in self, or self as in material form. He does not regard feeling as self. "'or self as possessed of feeling, "'or feeling as in self, "'or self as in feeling. He does, not, "'He does not regard perception as self, "'or self as possessed of perception, "'or perception as in self, "'or self as in perception. "'He does not regard formations as self, "'or self as possessed of formations, "'or formations as in self, "'or self as in formations.' He does not regard awareness as self, or self as possessed of awareness, or, or, or awareness as in self, or self as in awareness. That is how identity view does not come to be. In one who becomes a stream enter, the first three fetters are destroyed. The first fetter is sakaya diti, the belief in a personal self. The second is. Uh, doubt in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and the third is clinging to rites and rituals the first one, this is what we're talking about, Sakaya Ditti, when one becomes a stream enter, they understand on a mental level through some level of experience of seeing things as they are and detaching from the self concept that indeed none of these five aggregates can be considered to be self, they see things as impersonal That doesn't mean that they don't stop identifying because there can be a point where they do identify. But in that process of identifying, they can recognize, oh, I'm identifying and start letting go. That identification process, that deeper rooted identification process is conceit, the mana, that is eradicated when you attain arahatship. Lady, what is the Noble Eightfold Path? Friend Visaka, it is just this Noble Eightfold Path. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So we know what this is. Right view is, there's the mundane right view and the super mundane right view. The mundane right view understands action and consequence. That's the heart of that. The super mundane right view is completely understanding and experiencing the four noble truths. Right intention is threefold. Renunciation, letting go of taking things personally, letting go of identifying with things. Non-ill will, facilitated through the cultivation of loving-kindness. And non-cruelty, facilitated through the process of cultivating compassion. Right speech, refraining from harsh speech, false speech, slander, gossip, malicious speech, abusive speech. Think before you speak, right? T-H-I-N-K. Is it the right time to say what you want to say? Is it honest? What is the intention behind it? Is it intentionally wholesome or unwholesome? Is it necessary for you to say it and can you say it with kindness? Right action, keeping the precepts, refraining from killing and killing living beings, harming living beings, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual and sensual misconduct, and by extension, let, refraining from indulging in intoxicants, which can lead you to break the other precepts. And then we have right livelihood. Right? Livelihood is having livelihood that does not cause harm to oneself and to others. And then right effort. Preventing the unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. Abandoning the already arisen, unwholesome states. Generating unarisen, wholesome states. And then maintaining those arisen wholesome states. In other words, six Rs. And then write mindfulness, seeing body as body, mind as mind, feeling as feeling, mind objects as mind objects, in relation to is there craving or not. In essence, remembering to observe how mind's attention moves from one object to the other. And then write concentration, Going, letting go of the hindrances, coming to a mind that is devoid of sensual pleasure, and then entering the different jhanas. Lady, is the Noble Eightfold Path conditioned or unconditioned? Friend Visaka, the Noble Eightfold Path is conditioned. They are using causes and conditions for the mind to let go at deeper and deeper levels until it ceases and touches the unconditioned. Lady, are the three aggregates included by the Noble Eightfold Path, or is the Noble Eightfold Path included by the three aggregates? Here, when they say three aggregates, they're not talking about three of the five aggregates. They are talking about the three categories, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. The three aggregates are not included by the Noble Eightfold Path, friend Visaka, but the Noble Eightfold Path is included by the three aggregates, right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are included in the aggregate of virtue, Sila. Right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. These states are included in the aggregate of concentration. Samadhi. And we'll see more about how that happens. Right view and right intention. These states are included in the aggregate of wisdom. Panya. Lady, what is concentration? What is Samadhi? Right? Right? What is the basis of Samadhi? What is the equipment of Samadhi? What is the development of Samadhi? So the first question is, what is Samadhi? Unification of mind, friend Visakha, is Samadhi. Ekagata. An attention that is non-dispersed. A mind that is not refracted. A mind that stays with its object of meditation is Samadhi, being collected. What is the basis of Samadhi? The four foundations of mindfulness are the basis of Samadhi. In other words, how do you come to Samadhi? Recognizing when the mind is not in Samadhi and bringing it back. Remembering to observe how your mind's attention moves from one object to the other. Right mindfulness is the basis of Samadhi. So what is the equipment of Samadhi? What are the tools used to gain Samadhi? The four right efforts are the tools for Samadhi, are the equipment of Samadhi. So how do you get into Samadhi? Recognizing your mind is distracted, releasing your attention from that distraction, relaxing the mind's tension and tightness, the craving in the mind and body, coming back to the smile, generating a wholesome state, and then returning back to an object of meditation. This is the six R's, the four right efforts. What is the development of Samadhi? How do you continue to develop Samadhi? The continual repetition, development, and cultivation of these states is a development of Samadhi therein. Right effort, the six R's to regain your mindfulness, which leads to collectedness, is the development of Samadhi. When you let go, when your mind doesn't become collected anymore, becomes distracted, come back to right effort. Use the six R's, regain your mindfulness, deepen your awareness, come back to Samadhi. When you get distracted again, do the same process. The cultivation, repetition of these states, the six R's, mindfulness, observation, and collectedness, is the development of Samadhi. Every time you are not in Jhana, to bring back your mind in Jhana, six R's, regain your mindfulness, and then develop collectedness. Lady, how many formations are there? How many types of samskaras are there? How many categories of Sankaras are there? There are these three formations, friend Visaka, the bodily formation, the verbal formation, and the mental formation. But lady, what is the bodily formation? What is the verbal formation? What is the mental formation? In-breathing and out-breathing, inhalation and exhalation, friend, are the bodily formation. Applied thought and sustained thought are the verbal formation. Perception and feeling are the mental formation. So he asks an interesting question. He says, But lady, why are in-breathing and out-breathing the bodily formation? Why are applied thought and sustained thought, or thinking and examining thought, the verbal formation? Why are perception and feeling the mental formation? Friend Visaka, in-breathing and out-breathing are bodily. These are states bound up with the body. Any kind of states that are bound up with the body are included in the bodily formation. That is why these states are the bodily formation. In the case of the verbal formation, first one applies thought and then sustains thought. And subsequently one breaks out into speech. That is why applied thought and sustained thought are the verbal formation, thinking and examining thought. You see something, you have an experience of something, and then your mind sees it, contemplates it, thinks about it. And then you break out into speech of what it is you want to express, based on that thought. These are constituted in verbal formation. Perception and feeling are mental. Even bodily perception and bodily feeling are mental. These are states bound up with the mind. That is why perception and feeling are the mental formation. Lady, how does the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness come to be? Friend Visaka When a bhikkhu is attaining the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, it does not occur to him, I shall attain the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness. Or, I am attaining the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness. Or, I have attained the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness. But rather, his mind has previously been developed in such a way that it leads him to that state. So, in the process of predetermining how the mind attains cessation, there's no sense of the I attaining the cessation. There's just a predetermined time. Mind will cease and emerge after this many hours, or mind will emerge at so and so time, or whatever it might be. That's the prior intention, prior determination. But in the process of attaining, there's no thought that I am attaining. There's no thought that I have attained. Because when you actually get into cessation, your verbal formations cease. We'll see how that happens. As soon as you catch yourself going into cessation, that's where the trouble is. You're recognizing, oh, this is the pathway leading to cessation. What happens? Verbal formations come up. And then what happens? Your mind becomes agitated. So what do you do? six R let go soften come back to the prior state before the mind heads towards cessation and continue to develop that it could be equanimity which leads to disenchantment which leads to dispassion which leads to cessation Your mind recognizing their cessation and then getting agitated about it, excited about it, means that you haven't developed this passion to the fullest extent. This passion doesn't care if it attains Nibbana or not. Nibbana happens when you least expect it. When you least anticipate it. Because anticipation and expectation Are synonyms of craving. So, recognizing you're about to get into cessation or the fear that arises in taking that plunge means there's not enough dispassion. Take a step backward, come back to the dispassion, continue to cultivate it, let go of any expectations, and don't do anything. And then when you least expect it, cessation. Lady, when a bhikkhu is attaining the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, which states cease first in him? The bodily formation, the verbal formation or the mental formation? Friend Visaka, when the bhikkhu is attaining the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, first the verbal formation ceases. Then the bodily formation ceases. Then the mental formation ceases. Why is this? When you get to the fourth jhana, you you start losing contact with the body. And the bodily formation starts to cease and you become... Deep in your mind where you start to experience infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness and so on. But in the case of verbal formations, they cease in the second jhana. So first the verbal formation ceases. Right? Because you let go of the thinking and examining thought. The thoughts in the background have nothing to do with thinking and examining thought. The thoughts in the background are just feeling. But the prior determination through bringing up a feeling, using imagery, those kinds of things, those cease in the second jhana. So verbal formations cease in the second jhana. The bodily formations cease in the fourth jhana. And then the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness means all mental formations cease. Because all feeling and perception ceases. All mental feeling and perception also ceases. Lady, how does emergence from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness come to be, friend Visaka? When a bhikkhu is emerging from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, it does not occur to him, "I shall emerge from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness," or "I am emerging from the attainment." of the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. Or I have emerged from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. But rather his mind has been previously developed in such a way that it leads him to that state, prior determination of when mind will come out. But the thought that I am arising, that personalizing of it, does not come up there is a knowing mind has come out and there is a big knowing that mind has come out because of what happens when mind comes out of cessation lady when a bhikkhu is emerging from the attainment of the cessation of perception feeling and consciousness which states arise which states arise in him first the bodily formation the verbal formation or the mental formation when a bhikkhu is emerging from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, first the mental formation arises, then the bodily formation, then the, the verbal formation. Why is that? Because you experience mental feeling after making contact with Nibbana, which is what we're going to talk about now. And you experience joy and relief. That's the mental formation arising. And you feel it, the energy in your body, the bodily formation arises. And then you say, oh, wow, what was that? And that's the verbal formation. Lady, when a bhikkhu has emerged from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, how many kinds of contact touch him? Friend Visaka, when a bhikkhu has emerged from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, three kinds of contact touch him. Signless, actually the voidness contact, signless contact, and desireless contact. Voidness means it's empty of any kind of self. Signless means that it's not taking anything as an object. Desireless means that there is no direction in the mind going somewhere. Voidness comes from the realization of the emptiness of self, anatta. Signlessness comes from the realization of the impermanence of things, anicca. And desirelessness or undirected mind comes from the realization of dukkha that any kind of direction somewhere will lead to Dukkha. So the prior experience of this happens in Infinite Consciousness. You start to see the impermanent nature of Consciousness and it becomes tiresome. Therefore you see Dukkha and then you realize there's no control right here and you understand anatta. These three allow you then to experience Nibbana. So this contact that they're talking about Contact that is void or empty, contact that is signless, contact that is desireless, this is contact with the nibbana element. When contact arises, what arises in dependence on contact? Feeling. Right? So when the contact with Nibbana element happens, what happens next? There is a feeling of joy and relief that is felt. There is a feeling of energy, a feeling of clarity. First time this happens, there is a lot of joy that comes up, a lot of energy. People can't sleep. And the joy lasts for a day, maybe a couple of days. And this is the feeling that is being experienced. So don't mistake the feeling of joy to be Nibbana. It is conditioned by the experience of Nibbana, by contact with Nibbana. But the contact with Nibbana itself is unconditioned. And so sometimes the question arises, how do these attainments happen? Through the prior development of right effort. The more you six are, the more you let go of identification with processes, the more you let go of craving, the easier it is for your mind to stop taking personal the feeling of joy and relief that arise dependent upon contact with the Nibbana element. And so, when the mind makes contact with Nibbana, for that moment, mind is completely free. free of the fetters, free of the taints, completely free. But what happens when the feeling arises, there's an I, there's a me that grasps to that feeling and doesn't want that feeling to go away. So as you start to see this identification process and as you start to let go of it deeper and deeper, Then the next attainments happen. Until the experience of Nibbana is no big deal. When that happens, then arahatship. Mind doesn't, it's okay, cool, Nibbana, whatever. You know? But because the mind is always looking for it, they can still be the fetters, they can still be the taints. Lady, when a bhikkhu has emerged from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, to what does his mind incline? To what does it lean? To what does it tend? Friend Visaka, when a bhikkhu has emerged from the attainment of the cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, his mind inclines to seclusion, leads to seclusion, tends to seclusion. This is one translation of the word that's the word seclusion. Of course, the mind after cessation is just like floating. Everything is just vivid, you feel like you're just, you know, on cloud nine, just floating around. Everything is fine. Not really talking to to people, don't care about people, don't care about anything. Just want to be in there. That's one kind of seclusion. But there's something else which this word seclusion is translated from. That is viveka. Vivek. Discernment. How do you discern? What are you discerning? You are seeing the links of dependent origination and realizing for yourself how everything arises dependent upon impersonal causes and conditions. That's what your mind tends to. Seeing the links of dependent origination. Why? Because when your mind makes contact with Nibbana, it's unconditioned, that contact. But dependent upon that contact, there is feeling and perception. So there is the arising of the links of dependent origination based on that contact. If the mind clings to that feeling, ignorance continues again. Fettered formations arise again. Tainted consciousness arises again. And one sees the links of dependent origination in that way. If there's no clinging at all, this is why the sutta says, through not clinging, his mind was liberated. If there's no clinging, Then it will just be seen as it is. No ignorance comes. No fettered formations arise. Pure formations, dependent upon that contact, arise. Pure consciousness arises. And the rest of the series, until feeling. No craving, no clinging, no becoming, no birth of action. No whole mass of suffering arises. Lady, how many kinds of feeling are there? How many kinds of Vedana are there? Friend Visaka, there are three kinds of feeling. Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and neither painful nor pleasant feeling. But lady, what is pleasant feeling? What is painful feeling? What is neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Friend Visaka, whatever is felt bodily or mentally as pleasant and soothing is pleasant feeling. Whatever is felt bodily or mentally as painful and hurting is painful feeling. Whatever is felt bodily or mentally as neither soothing nor hurting is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Lady, what is pleasant and what is painful in regard to pleasant feeling? That's an interesting question. What is pleasant and what is painful in regard to pleasant feeling? What is painful and what is pleasant in regard to painful feeling? What is pleasant and what is painful in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Friend Visaka, pleasant feeling is pleasant when it persists and painful when it changes. Painful feeling is painful when it persists, and pleasant when it changes. Neither painful nor pleasant feeling is pleasant when there is knowledge of it. You're paying attention to that feeling, even if it's neutral feeling, meaning there's complete mindfulness. And painful when there is no knowledge of it, lack of mindfulness, when there is a lack of awareness of it, there can arise the tendency of conceit, the tendency of craving and so on and so forth, the tendency of uh, identifying with that feeling. Lady, what underlying tendency underlies pleasant feeling? What underlying tendency underlies painful feeling? what underlying tendency underlies neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Friend Visaka, the underlying tendency to lust underlies pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion underlies painful feeling. The underlying tendency to ignorance underlies neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Makes sense? If it's a pleasant feeling, there will be this bending towards wanting it. If it's a painful feeling, there's this sense of not wanting it. And if it's a neutral feeling, there can arise lack of mindfulness to it. Because it's neither painful nor pleasant. Now this is an interesting question. He, he asks, Lady, does the underlying tendency to lust underlie all pleasant feeling? Does the underlying tendency to aversion underlie all painful feeling? Does the underlying tendency to ignorance underlie all neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Fenvisaka. The underlying tendency to lust does not underlie all pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion does not underlie all painful feeling. The underlying tendency to ignorance does not underlie all neutral feeling. Why is that? When you have a pleasant feeling, only when you say this is my pleasant feeling and you want to hold on to it does the underlying tendency to craving arise. Only when there is a painful feeling and you say I don't like that painful feeling does the underlying tendency to aversion arise. Only when there is a neutral feeling and you start identifying or you don't even notice that feeling because there's lack of mindfulness, does the underlying tendency to ignorance arise? But if you are aware of pleasant feeling, if you're aware of painful feeling, if you're aware of neutral feeling, meaning there's complete mindfulness, complete attention, you don't take it as permanent, you don't take it as personal, then there won't be the underlying tendency to craving to aversion or to ignorance. Lady, what should be abandoned in regard to pleasant feeling? What should be abandoned in regard to painful feeling? What should be abandoned in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Friend Visaka, the underlying tendency to lust The underlying tendency to lust should be re- abandoned in regard to pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion should be abandoned in regard to painful feeling. The underlying tendency to ignorance should be abandoned in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling. So you don't abandon the feeling. You can't 6R a feeling. You abandon the identification with that feeling. You abandon the lust for that pleasant feeling, the aversion for that painful feeling, and the ignorance of the neutral feeling. You abandon the lack of mindfulness, bring up more attention, understand it to be dependently arisen, let go of identifying with it because it is dependently arisen, therefore impermanent, therefore liable to cause suffering, therefore not to be seen as me, mine, or myself. The awareness, the observation, the mindfulness, the attention, that prevents the underlying tendencies from arising. And when they do arise, the regaining of mindfulness, of observation, of attention, lets go of those underlying tendencies. Now here's the other question. Lady, does the underlying tendency to lust have to be abandoned in regard to all pleasant feeling? Does the underlying tendency to aversion have to be abandoned in regard to all painful feeling? Does the underlying tendency to ignorance have to be abandoned in regard to all neither painful nor pleasant feeling? And Visaka, the underlying tendency to lust does not have to be abandoned in regard to all pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion does not have to be abandoned in regard to all painful feeling. The underlying tendency to ignorance does not have to be abandoned in regard to all neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Why? If you're already aware, then there won't be underlying tendencies in regards to those feelings. So you don't have to abandon them all the time. They are only abandoned insofar as when they arise due to lack of attention, lack of mindfulness, lack of awareness, lack of observation. Now here's a a deeper explanation of that. Here, friend Visaka, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. With that, he abandons lust, and the underlying tendency to lust does not underlie that. Here, a bhikkhu considers thus: When shall I enter upon and ab- abide in that base? that the noble ones now enter upon and abide in, in one who thus generates a longing for the supreme liberation. A longing here is chanda, wholesome inclination. Grief arises with that longing as condition. Grief in the sense of samvega, the desire for liberation. With that, he abandons aversion, and the underlying tendency to aversion does not underlie that. Here, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the disappearance of joy and grief, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. Fourth jhana. With that he abandons ignorance and the underlying tendency to ignorance does not underlie that. So the first jhana allows you to let go of lust and the underlying tendency to lust. The chanda towards liberation allows you to let go of identifying with painful feeling and the underlying tendency to aversion. And then the fourth jhana There's neutrality there, complete awareness there, strong mindfulness. So no underlying tendency to ignorance can arise. Technically speaking, none of the underlying tendencies would be present if you are in jhana in the right way. That is to say, you have metacognition. You understand that jhana to be impermanent and conditioned. Therefore, you don't take it personally. So, there won't be any arising of aversion, craving, ignorance, doubt, views, conceit, or the desire for being. So, I'll read that again. Here, a considers thus, when shall I enter upon and abide in that base that the noble ones now enter upon and abide in? In one who thus generates a longing for the supreme liberation, grief arises with that longing as condition. With that, he abandons aversion and the underlying tendency to aversion does not underlie that. So... When there is the chanda for liberation, the mind does not take that painful feeling, or even the pleasant feeling, as personally. It lets go of the attachment to anything. All it's looking for is Nibbana. All its mind is inclined to is Nibbana. Which means it's not going to try to explore how did this painful feeling arise. It's not going to try to explore and see what is happening in regards to this painful feeling it will only seek any identification process that's going there and then letting go of that. Now we get into what's known as the counterparts. The counterpart comes from the word Patipada. There's two uh, connotations for Patipada. One is what leads to that next step and what is the opposite. Of that, so now I'll explain why this is the case. So he asks, "Lady, what is the counterpart of pleasant feeling?" Friend Visaka, painful feeling is the counterpart of pleasant feeling. Makes sense, right? Painful feeling is the opposite of pleasant feeling. What is the counterpart of painful feeling? Pleasant feeling. Pleasant feeling is the opposite of painful feeling. Painful feeling is the opposite of pleasant feeling. So far, so good. What is the counterpart of neither painful nor pleasant feeling? Ignorance is the counterpart of neither painful nor pleasant feeling. It's not saying ignorance is the opposite of neither painful or pleasant feeling. It's saying ignorance, you get to ignorance through neither painful nor pleasant feeling when there's lack of mindfulness of it. So this case, it's not the opposite, but it's leading to that. Now he asks, what is the counterpart of ignorance? Wisdom, Wisdom. true knowledge is the counterpart of ignorance. Now he's asking, what is the opposite of ignorance in this case? So true knowledge, wisdom. What is the counterpart of true knowledge? But he's not asking this time, what is the opposite? What is the counterpart? What does true knowledge lead to? Liberation. Nibbana. Liberation. Deliverance of mind. Is the counterpart of true knowledge. What, well, okay, so actually it's deliverance of mind, which is cessation. What is the counterpart of deliverance? Deliverance. Now what is the opposite of deliverance. What does deliverance lead to? Now it's Nibbana. Nibbana is the counterpart of deliverance. Lady, what is the counterpart of Nibbana? Friend Visaka, you have pushed this line of questioning too far. <laughs> you are not able to grasp the limit to questions for the holy life friend Visaka, is grounded upon Nibbana, culminates in Nibbana, ends in Nibbana. If you wish, friend Visaka, go to the Blessed One and ask him about the meaning of this. As the Blessed One explains it to you, so you should remember it. Then the lay follower Visaka, having delighted and rejoiced in the Bhikkhuni Dhamma Dina's words, rose from his seat and after paying homage to her, Keeping her on his right, he went to the Blessed One. After paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and told the Blessed One his entire conversation with the Bikuni Damadina. When he finished speaking, the Blessed One told him, The Bikuni Damadina is wise, Visakha. The Bikuni Damadina has great wisdom. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you in the same way that the Bikuni Damadina has explained it. Such is its meaning, and so you should remember it. That is what the Blessed One said. The lay follower Visaka was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. I'm going to read uh, just a small section if I can find it. No, I can't find it. But there's another sutta called Kamabhu Sutta. And it's very similar to the other sutta that we just read. But in that sutta, the question is, uh, how do you get to this experience? Like, what is it facilitated by? And they, and he says, serenity and insight yoke together. In other words, you need both samatha and vipassana to get to cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. That's all I wanted to explain to you. But... Any questions? Uh, So, I just had uh,
1: two questions. questions. Um, I didn't get that last part about why does essentially ignorance lead to neither pleasant uh, nor painful feelings?
0: No, neither painful nor pleasant feeling can lead to ignorance. Um,
1: I didn't get get why that would lead to ignorance. Because
0: if there's lack of mindfulness of that experience, because it's neutral, that can lead to ignorance.
1: Right, right. So it is the lack of mindfulness of that which can lead to ignorance. Right. Not, not the presence of it
0: itself. Right. But because yeah. it, there is a uh, neutral feeling, that as condition where the mind is not aware of can lead right. to ignorance. Right. Got it. Understood.
1: Uh, the other question I had was that um, after we finish the retreat, when we go back, uh, what is the right mix of um, the uh, meditation techniques which which we should use because I'm I'm, I'm assuming that as life restarts, uh, uh, I mean I'm hoping I don't do anything wrong for which I need to forgive myself. But but if anyone else does that to me, then should I be going back to the uh, forgiveness uh, practice or uh, should I be doing only six uh, directions or, or?
0: So now you have a toolkit with you, right. right? So you have the six R's, you have loving kindness. You have compassion, you have mudita, you have equanimity, and you have forgiveness. Okay. Now you can use your intuition to guide you where you need it, when you need it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks.
2: A very uh, small clarification. Uh, online, when we are talking of the, uh, just taking the example of the pleasant feeling. Yeah. The underlying tendency is the attachment you said, right? And uh, attachment is to be abandoned, and not the feeling. Exactly. But I thought that it is the other way because the attachment is arising because of the pleasant feeling. Well, the pleasant even fe- if we remove the attachment, the pleasant feeling still continues, which is fine, and more attachment may arise.
0: Right. So here, the Buddha was talking about when he talked about any kind of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. He said that the, the the experience itself was not the issue. The pleasant feeling or the unpleasant feeling is not what is the issue. It's the, it's the craving intention or the intention rooted in craving. Now yes, what you're saying is quite valid, which is the pleasant feeling gives rise to the underlying tendency of attachment. But the only way that pleasant feeling goes away, is if it changes. That's why I'm saying you cannot do away with a feeling. But you can do away with any personalizing or identification with that feeling. So in other words, if it's a pleasant feeling, it will remain a pleasant feeling, whether you crave for it or not. But the craving in relation to the pleasant feeling is where the trouble is. Not the pleasant feeling itself. Oftentimes, even when you see like fully awakened beings, they will still experience pleasant feelings, but they don't have any attachment to that. They'll still experience painful feelings, but they won't have any aversion to it. They just allow the painful feeling to be there, or they allow the pleasant feeling to be there.
1: Yeah. I know uh regular basis of the retreat, what would be the ideal uh, time for sitting daily?
0: I would say uh, if you can sit for at least one hour a day, that should be sufficient. And if you can take uh, one once a week or once every two weeks where you're doing like a self-retreat, you switch off your phone, no social media, just sort of like what you're doing here, for once every two weeks, let's say. For how many hours? And then in that time, time span, three, four, five, six, eight hours, as much as you can. See, the the practice has a cumulative effect. The more you do it, it it builds a momentum, which then leads to deeper and deeper experiences and insights. I think there was a question behind you.
3: Will you please share some definitions For yourself, just in life, can you share the difference between joy and happiness?
0: Oh, yeah. So now there are are different kinds of joy and there are different kinds of happiness. Right? There are levels to it. There are layers to it. There is the joy in relation to sensual experience. Now, first of all, when we say joy and happiness, as it's mentioned in the sutta, as it talks about piti, and sukha, piti is that elevated experience of energetic joy. Sukha is more stable. One of the analogies that's given is piti is like a flickering flame; it's very energetic, but sukha is a very stable flame. You can say it's arguably longer lasting in that sense because it's more stable. Now. The joy that arises in dependence upon sensual experiences is one kind of joy. The joy that arises in relation to um, jhana, the joy and happiness that that arise in dependence on jhana, is another kind. The difference is, in the case of sensual pleasures, even though they are experienced by the mind, they originate through the experience of the sixth sense basis. Whereas the joy of jhana, the joy and happiness of jhana, Arise only in the mind, only through one's mental uh, letting go of hindrances. So, letting go of hindrances, there is this relief that's experienced. That relief is then the joy of the Dhamma. This is called Pamoja. This is another kind of joy. Then that leads to further joy, which is the piti that you experience. And then that leads to further sukkah, which leads to further tranquility. So joy and happiness in of themselves are impermanent. They're just conditions that lead to deeper states of mind that ultimately take you to the unconditioned. And their ultimate bliss is the bliss of no feeling. This is what Sariputta has, says, has said. You know, uh, Somebody asked, like, how can you say that that's blissful? The fact that you don't feel, how could you say it's blissful? He says, it is because of the fact that I don't feel that it is blissful because I'm no longer being, my mind is no longer being conditioned to have craving for this experience or attachment or aversion towards that experience. That kind of thing is very close to contentment. Contentment and acceptance. I would say if you boil down everything that is there in the Dhamma to one word, it is acceptance, accepting everything as it is.
3: So, just to follow up with that, for you, as you go through life, you experience just in normal, mon- mundane life things, what do you experience happiness and joy with, just out of curiosity?
0: What do I experience enjoyment out of, you
3: mean? Happiness versus joy.
0: Well, when I go into Jhana, for example, I experience joy. And I go into Jhana, I experience happiness. I enjoy a good laugh. If you tell me a good joke, I'll laugh. I watch a good movie. If it's a good comic movie, I'll laugh.
3: So just... Even mundane joy.
0: Yeah, normal things also you can experience happiness for. Does an Arahant
3: feel sadness or is that due to personalization?
0: Sadness is due to... Mistaking what is permanent, what is impermanent as permanent. And then the rest of that series. So identifying with that process as well.
3: And what would you say is a definition
0: of depression? Depression, yeah. I would say depression is this prolonged sort of dissatisfaction, this prolonged sort of. Not necessarily like energetic agitation, but there's just this, nothing feels right. It's an unpleasant experience, but uh, it's not necessarily heightened by large amounts of sadness all the time. And I think that dissatisfaction is also rooted in taking things personally, in identifying, in misperceiving When I say misperception, I'm talking about misperception of, again, taking what is impermanent as permanent, taking what is suffering as not suffering, taking what is not self as self. So depression, anxiety, any of these afflictive states of mind and heart, they arise because of misperception.
3: And then finally, um, can you share When we're speaking with other people, as we were talking about yesterday, for example, someone says, Hey, I'm interested in what what do you how do you define meditation in an easy way for a non meditator to understand and also then like share a little bit of the path or about what is possible or something in, in terms that people will understand coming off the street?
0: Yeah. So I would uh, help people define me- to define meditation to somebody who is just starting out. is basically, what if you could have a mind that is never distracted? Or a mind that is all the time never distracted, or almost all the time never distracted. And uh, in terms of the practice explaining, what if you could feel contentment? What if you could feel happiness? without a external cause for that happiness. Thank you. All the way there, yeah. Birth, yeah.
4: Just to touch on something that Samuel was uh, asking about, depression. Um, I would define depression as pain plus resistance mm. not accepting whatever it is you know, it's painful at the beginning, you don't accept it you resist it, the longer it stays, and that's a definition by Bhante Ramsay, by the way uh, it just continues yeah. um, okay, now to my question <clears throat> I love the sutta by the way uh, the beginning part of it uh, I think is for the, for the for people in India, I think, or anyone who's in the Dhamma or believes in Buddhism, I think this would be a great situation because, you know, uh, he comes home and she realizes that something's going on. Uh, but this is a great thing for her because she's also in the Dhamma, right? Uh, unfortunately in the west world this isn't the case
3: mm.
4: yeah. right? um, if we are referring to a young couple let's say uh, they just got married they're a couple years married uh, and the young woman becomes an anagami uh, during some sort of meditation retreat or whatever and comes home and the guy, you know, psychologically in the West, or even psychologically people need um, intimacy as yeah. a way of validation for themselves. It's part, it's part of it. Yeah. And uh, this could cause a lot of turmoil, mm-hmm. I would say. So I think this is a really relevant question for individuals that... Um, are into meditation, are into Buddhism, are into this, but have spouses that are not? And and how to uh, engage with these situations, especially, let's say, if the other person, again, is not, in, not even interested yeah. in what's going on?
0: I don't think you're going to like the answer I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but, I, I, I mean, jokes aside... Um, I think you need to have a, I mean, anyone who has that experience has to have a frank discussion that, look, that doesn't interest me anymore. It's just not possible for me to engage in something like that. I mean, there's been debates about that and arguments or, let's say, discussions about it which says that, you know, an anagami or an arhat out of compassion will have sexual intercourse with, you know, their partner it's not possible it's just not possible you know so there has to be some frank and uh, direct discussions about this and accordingly there has to be some kind of an agreement and if there's not then there has to be further discussion about what that means for the relationship
4: it's their karma it was the karma to happen i mean
0: that's one way to kind of look at it if you wanted to, but I don't know if the other person would take that as being compassionate.
2: Just a small one, since uh, a very concise uh, definition uh, from two ends uh, for the uh, depression Can you also please give a very concise suggestion to someone uh, who is struggling with this problem? What advice? In brief, I'm not...
0: uh... Yeah. Come to Deer Park. This is what I was told.
2: (laughs) As my friend mentioned... No, I know. Yeah. uh, Depression is pain plus resistance. Yes. I think the resistance is... Uh, is a very important part of that. Yes, so, yes. Coming to Deer Park would have resistance. <laughs> I mean, yes. in, in that sense, to other suggestions also. So.
0: You know, with, with someone who has depression, you can only be supportive to them. You can't take them out of that depression. You can give them all the kinds of advice and all kinds of things to say, hey, you know, come out of it, cheer up, do things, do that. But uh, you can only be supportive. And if that support is only being there for them, being respectful of their space, being silent, just being there, just being a presence, that might be more than enough for them to know that there's somebody cares. First, they need to know that somebody cares about them and that that there is somebody that they can go to to discuss anything and that they know that that person will not judge them for whatever it is that they say, even judge them for that depression. That would be the first step. And then bit by bit, they start opening up and then, then you can start to kind of help them reframe Help them. Don't reframe it for them. Help them through their own processing. Reframe how they're seeing the world. That's the only way they can come out of it. They have to make the effort. But you can be that support system and facilitate that process. But in the beginning, it starts with just being a mere presence and saying, hey, I'm there for you. I'll listen to you without judgment. And I'll accept everything that's going on without judgment.
5: Um, depression is also a story that someone's telling themselves, and they have to they have to want to let go of that story in order for for change to happen. And uh, we can all notice this in ourselves. I think sometimes when there's this thought that's playing in our mind. And at first we're kind of indulging in it even though it brings us a lot of pain we just continue to think this thought and tell ourselves this story and then eventually we suffer enough and we decide i'm done with that story but it'll still keep coming back for a little while it's just you've kind of reached that point of like delson was saying someone gives you your third portion of your favorite meal but in this case you know maybe it's not it's a disgusting meal but you're just Kind of revolts, uh, you have revulsion for the thought. And then that's when the change will occur and the thought will stop coming up eventually. So um, the thing about depression is it works at the level of stories, which is different than the level of insights, meditative insights. So you can't necessarily meditate your way out of depression. The like cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty helpful for depression because yeah. If you think about you're in a you're you're trapped in this room and cognitive behavioral therapy is rearranging the furniture and meditation is trying to get out of the room but sometimes there's furniture blocking the door like if someone has depression so they need to first rearrange their furniture at the level of stories and mm-hmm. kind of working with cognitive behavioral therapy and then they can get out of the room once once things are Uh, kind of back to normal with meditation
6: Would would you say some of the twin practice is also kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy like you're reprogramming the way the mind
0: thinks and works I would go as far as to say that the dhamma itself is a form of CBT
5: um, that's a great point, and it can be applied that way, right? Like the six R's can also be applied at the level of cli- at the level of clinging. You notice the story. You relax, release, come back, smile, and that is like CBT. But actually, sitting meditation and trying to get them to into deeper states of right. jhana that isn't going to help. First, they have to work at the level of clinging.
6: Yeah. Intensity. The depression, maybe very intense situations yeah. can't be handled using meditation.
0: And the other thing, I mean, to add to that would be sometimes it's a, it's a chemical imbalance in the mind, and in, in the brain, you know, and they require certain kind of medications and that might be a first step for them to kind of get out of that. So I, you can't use meditation as a panacea for all all issues in that sense. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
4: I'd just like to touch a little bit more, based on uh, the to answer about with regards to depression, um, and to Metananda's point, it's a story, it's a story that we're going through. For a lot of us, I think if we go back to dependent origination, and we realize that the entire thing is an impersonal process, it becomes easy to forgive whatever it is that's making you depressed. Okay? Because you're, you're taking the story on, you're making it personal, and then you're resisting it. But if you go through dependent origination, and you go, oh, hold on a second, this person who did this to me they didn't do it to me. It wasn't a personal attack to me. They were just reacting to their causes and conditions. Meditating on that a lot does help you. Um, I'll touch on something that it's not related to TWIM, but I found it very helpful, which is Ton Glenn, uh, a, a method of um, meditation found on FitMind app. Um, ton, little plug there. Uh, ton Glenn is where you picture someone who has hurt you and on the breath in you take in their suffering and on the breath out you give them good vibes love and kindness, compassion something happens there in the brain it just clicks and the person just shifts let's say there was a woman who was raped this is a really hard situation Okay. I think if the person first takes a look at dependent origination really understands it and says, oh wow, that person was just a really bad person they're reacting to their causes and conditions I just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, here's what happened this person's depressed, they're going to be depressed for a long time, but they take a look at dependent origination and go, wow this has nothing to do with me, I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, I've been resisting this thing the entire time It takes a lot to sit down and take that person that hurt you so much and say, I will take your suffering in, on the in-breath, and I will give you out compassion. Compassion's a huge tool. So my two cents on that.
7: Uh, So this is a bit of a, a devil's advocate question. You know, we're in the same topic of depression. So can meditation
0: lead to depression? Yes. Oh, yes. Depends on what kind of meditation you're doing.
7: Right. Uh, and, And if so, why?
0: It can be because of the kind of perspective the meditation provides you that leads to, like, oh, this world isn't worth living in. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it can lead to craving for non-existence. Mm. It can lead to psychosis, even, sometimes. Mm. If the mind... Hmm?
5: Go ahead. I the dark night of the soul.
4: I've heard of that.
5: Yeah. But we actually haven't had any... I don't know of any cases of that in the twin practice, do you?
0: No. I think the closest to that is just experiencing discomfort with infinite consciousness, let's say. Like it's tiresome. Usually it happens because the mind becomes uh, very, very focused and experiences a lot of restlessness. And sometimes it becomes so one-pointed that it can be just disturbing to the way the mind is perceiving things. Like, uh, you know, you can be so focused that it's like you're seeing only this much. Right. And then every time you look around, it's like, what's going on here, you know? And then you can't see the whole picture. So certain kinds of practices or certain kinds of ways of doing meditation can lead to that.
7: So doing to him wrongly can Mm -hmm. can lead to that as well. Yes. Uh, So, you know, going back to the suttas. So here is an Anagami talking to an Arahant. Sometimes these are basic questions, Hmm. right? So is there an aspect that he wants to learn or from the Arahant or is it just, you know, hey, here's my wife, Uh, let, let me test it out.
0: Right. I think in this case it could be that he genuinely wanted to know certain things. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, I mean, an anangami will be free of like the first five uh, fetters. But that doesn't mean their understanding of the Dhamma is always as clear as it can be. Mm-hmm. So it's quite possible that that's the case. Now there's a, there's a similar, almost same dialogue like this between, uh, between uh, uh, Chitta and the householder. Mm-hmm. Kamabu, that was the one that I wanted to go over. Right. Uh, and that in that, Chitta was an Anagami who would actually teach monastics because his understanding was of the Dhamma is really good. And in this case it was just like trying to figure out this guy Kamabu, does he know his stuff? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Alright. Uh,
7: so this is a, a simple observation. Uh, you said that not being aware of the neutral feeling can lead to ignorance. Or am I putting it wrongly? Right.
0: Okay. Lack of mindfulness, Lack not being mindfulness. aware, right? Lack of attention.
7: So is it like boredom?
0: Yes. Boredom and indifference.
7: Mm. So here I am sitting, you know, nothing, is, nothing much is happening. Yes. Yeah. Can we do something?
0: Yes. Okay. And that's why I keep saying, don't do anything. <laughs>
7: <laughs> okay. Uh, so, the, uh, the third question I have uh, is can you expound on clinging to rites and rituals, rules and regulations? Like, yeah. there's a spectrum, I suppose. Yeah.
0: So the very basic understanding is clinging to rites and rituals with the idea that they will take you to Nibbana. Uh, clinging to certain kinds of ideas that, you know, if I do only if I only do this, this is going to take me to Nibbana. If I only do that, setting up conditions in your mind that if only this was not here, or if only I had done it this way, these kinds of things can also happen. Clinging to rites and rituals can also mean clinging to a certain kind of routine. If I don't do this routine this certain way, my mind gets disturbed. Another kind of clinging to rites and rituals is uh, you know, uh, seeking out through prayers that, you know, this be changed, or, you know, so that's in direct violation of the Dhamma in terms of your karma. So it's like, you know, or things like believing in luck. Right? If I have if I have my lucky sock, or if I have this gem or if i wear this or if i wear that this is going to take me this is going to make everything okay for me
8: sacrifices,
0: sacrifices yeah that's the other one animal sacrifices things like that i'll get to that but i know this person has been waiting for some time so
1: Uh, so uh, one of the things which I wanted to ask was that um, um, that essentially post uh, retreat, you know, like one of the things which you've been doing during the 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 retreat to us on a daily basis is that you've been seeing how we have been doing and you've been tuning the technique that that we do. So what is going to be the uh, uh, replacement for this uh, post uh, retreat, like is there, uh, you know, um, any I um, mean, any guidelines you would have about how how we should tweak, tweak or tune our our uh, you know
5: practice.
0: So if you have questions and things like that, you can always join uh, the Telegram support group, which is quite active. So you go to dhammasuka.org and you look for the Telegram support group. You look for the. Uh, it's called Groups.io. I.O. used to be called Yahoo Groups. They're very active over there. So you can just ask a question and people are more than willing to help you out with that. And I found that, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm not on Telegram group, but I'm on the I.O. group. So once in a while in my Yahoo email, I'll see somebody ask a question and there's like six or seven different perspectives on how to help that person. So that's probably the beginning of that. Uh, another thing is you could always try to attend wherever available weekly talks that are being provided. I used to do weekly talks a lot, but now with all the traveling and retreats, it's getting a little challenging. But I know that Suttavada does do retreat uh, we, uh, weekly talks with their teachers, and I think Damasuka might also. Another thing to try is online retreats. you know, so you could go do an online retreat maybe. Every couple of uh, months or every three or four months, depending upon your schedule, because those online retreats you know you could do from the comfort of your home and email them and do zoom and all of that, so those are some of the resources that can help you
1: Got it Thanks. Uh, but uh, essentially, actually, what I was more referring to was that you know like on a daily basis that you know the sort of the fine tuning that uh, you know uh, stay with this, stay with that yeah. And, um, but i think there's no replacement for that except being at a retreat well uh, yeah uh,
0: or you could hire me <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um but you know you could you, you start to uh, get in alignment with your intuition if there's something going on with your meditation and you don't know what's going on you could just uh just pause just ask the mind the question, what's going on here? And right. wait for the answer. Intuition really helps. That makes sense. And it's a matter of continuing to exercise that ability to apply intuition.
1: Got it. Um, and just another thing which I'd just like to add to the, uh, the question which was asked there about you know, the advice to anybody who's in uh, depression. One of the things which I've seen, which is a very low-hanging fruit, is that if there is usually someone... Who is adding, uh, or who is trying to feed negative thoughts to someone in uh, depression? If at least you can get rid of that, that whoever is that, you know, the entity who's adding negative thoughts there, and right. uh, you know, to um, uh, take them out of the picture. Right. I don't know how, but yeah, but, yeah. in a in a non-violent <coughs> way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. non-violent. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, basically, it's looking at some of the causes of what's leading to it, or or aggravating the situation, and you know. Thank
7: you.
0: There were some questions on this side. I don't see that as a rites and rituals. If you start becoming very attached to it, astrology is basically a patterning of understanding your old karma especially Vedic astrology. It's so complex if you look at it. It goes into so many details and calculations. Now, the Buddha, I talked about how wrong livelihood is also astrology, but that's in reference to monastics again. But astrology can help some people, depending upon what kind of astrology it is, I suppose. But generally speaking, it helps you understand... uh, or can help you understand certain aspects of your personality. Now, the thing is, uh, people will rationalize and say, oh, that's a coincidence and things like that. So you see what works for you. But I wouldn't negate it as being something that's clinging to rites and rituals unless it leads you to getting attached to it in such a way that you always consult it and you're like, that's the only way I have to do it, especially trying to predict the future. Yeah. Exactly. At what date and hour will I achieve Nibbana? <laughs> in a similar
3: vein, uh, what do you think about, or what does Buddha think about people being blessed by spiritual masters, for example? Like India is a very rich country with much history in this. The one that I know most of is Neem Karoli Bhava, but there are three books at least written by hundreds of different people who have experienced some sort of change in their life i have met some of the different people in Kainchi Dam who have had healings or Mm. different things like that done by
0: by Babaji, for example. I think that could be sort of like a dedication of merit kind of situation where they say, let my wholesome karma bless this person. At least that's how I would interpret it.
3: That wouldn't fall into like the rites and rituals of I mean, because some of these people have great bhakti for humanda. yeah, I
0: mean that's their choice, you know if they have bhakti for that because they they treat they consider them to be divine or this or that that's that's their choice.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: So two things. Um, uh, could you expand a bit more on how to cultivate that dispassion that you need for the quiet mind? Yes. And uh, the other thing is any any things that you have seen to synergize with twim, like uh, I don't know, fasting or a darkness retreat or something like that. <laughs>
0: You're always trying to calibrate, aren't you? Um, in the case of uh, understanding how to develop more disenchantment, understand what leads to the disenchantment or what leads to the dispassion. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the upanishad Sutta, which is how, this whole path that you guys have been walking through throughout this retreat. This leads to this, this leads to that. So in this case, the equanimity leads to disenchantment. If your disenchantment is weak, go back to the equanimity. Develop and cultivate that equanimity and let that lead to disenchantment. If your dispassion is weak, come back to disenchantment. Maybe you have to take two steps before that. If your equanimity is weak, come to collectedness. If your collectedness is weak, come to tranquility, relax. If your tranquility is weak, bring up joy, bring up sukha, and so on. So this path which I'll lay out tomorrow, you'll see the different factors that lead to each of them. So once you understand that, then you can just go back and recalibrate in that way. And in terms of things that are synergistic with TWIM, do you have a... Yeah,
5: I would say in general, anything that leads to relaxation and uplifts the mind. So a couple examples would be sensory deprivation tanks. Someone asked about that in interviews. Uh, yoga Nidra, progressive relaxation, um, different calming uh, pranayama. So for example, Nadi Shodhana, alternate nostril breathing, full yogic breath, which is kind of a three-part breath, can be very calming. And then different yoga asanas that can just help alleviate tension in the body and allow you to sit longer. So in general, and then on the uplifting the mind part, you know, there's millions of practice, or you know, thousands of practices that uplift the mind. It could even be, um, yeah, like tonglen, what Humberto mentioned, or just any way of cultivating the Viharas. Gratitude practice. Gratitude. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one.
0: Uh, I I give this uh, advice to people who have sort of low, let's say, self esteem or some level of self-criticism, is uh, every day in the morning, write down five things that you like about yourself. Write down five things that are good about you. Every day for one month. But every day you write it, it has to be different. A different set of five things. That starts to, you know, rewire your, your, your perspective And let's go and soften all that self-criticism and self-judgment. Because in the beginning of the retreat, if you remember, I said there are two main things that cause people to sort of backslide or hit a plateau. One is trying too hard, and the other is not accepting, whether it's themselves or not accepting in general.
6: yesterday you were talking about this one on that sometimes uh, people can en- encounter a situation like where your goodness taken advantage like you, you won't speak speak harsh speech like you will you'll be always loving loving and kindful they might take advantage of you right so how you oh but you can be a emotion, ass-
0: yeah. you can be assertive you can call them out on it and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Don't take advantage of me. That's
5: it. There's a great story about that. Uh, You might know Sharon Salzberg, a pretty famous American teacher. She was over in India visiting some of her teachers, and uh, yeah, Manindra was her teacher at the time. And so she was in one of these little, I don't know what they call them here, but like taxi cabs, tuk-tuks or something. Rickshaw, And she was in the back, and uh, the rickshaw got stuck because there was so much rain. I think it was during the rainy season. And then someone tried to jump into the rickshaw and grab her and kind of uh, make an advance on her. And eventually she wrestled herself free, and or the tuk-tuk was able to get unstuck. And then she saw her teacher after that, and she said, I, I didn't know what to do because I didn't know how to deal with this person without hurting them or harming them somehow. And he said with all the loving kindness in my heart I would have taken your umbrella and whacked them over the head.
6: I have another theory question. Like uh, in India even, even like there are some stories even in the case of Buddha like they can know exactly what time they will be dying like is it uh, like how, how, can, how can it be possible
0: it is possible when you understand your own karmic stream and the choices you made in the past and then start to look into the future you can know exactly the time and uh, date of your passing it is possible
6: in the case of Buddha, like uh, I, I don't know whether I understand correctly or not. Buddha, self, like he determined his own time.
0: He uh, knew now it was time to go. Actually, if I remember the the uh, sequence of events correctly, I believe Mara came to him and said, "Now, you know, Buddha, it's time." And, uh, and, and the Buddha said, all right, don't worry about that. And then, I'm paraphrasing, of course, this isn't exactly how it happened, but. Uh, and then he relinquished his life force, it says. And he said, three months from hence, I will attain Prahi Hi, so I had a comment and a
9: question. Uh, about fasting, uh, just sharing my personal experience, I fast do uh, 36 hours a week, once a week, and uh, days when I was uh, meditating regularly, I found that the morning that I break my fast, before I break, so I would have fasted for around 32 hours, uh, my mind was clearer and I could concentrate better. I don't know whether it's true for everybody, but I felt really good, and my meditation would generally go better than other days.
0: If I can just comment on that also. Actually, if you think about the way the Buddha had structured how, at least in the Theravada tradition, how monks are supposed to eat, how monastics are supposed to eat. They don't eat after the noonday and everything. In a sense, what they're doing is intermittent fasting. They only eat maybe up to two meals a day, up until 12 o'clock. And then they don't eat until the next day. right? the soup
9: in the evening, you fasting You are doing a 24 Something like that. Like, yeah,
0: similar to that, exactly. What was your question?
9: Uh, so it was about Nibbana. So yeah. uh, you spoke about the various after-effects after, after Nibbana, whether it's joy, energy, sleep deprivation, stuff like that. Uh, is it the same no matter what level of Nibbana you come out of, no matter what cessation it is?
0: Not always, no. Because uh, as you get to subsequent attainments, the, you, you, you don't experience the same level of joy you experienced in the first time, you experience, you start to experience more equanimity, actually, more balance of mind. That's why I was saying at Arhatship, it's like, I don't care, it's nibbana, whatever, you know, because you have so much equanimity, so much tranquility. And so the mind doesn't need to necessarily recover from the after effects. Uh, and when I say recover, meaning, you know, with the sleep, lack of sleep that happens because of a lot of energy and things like that. The other thing is, you'll also start to see dependent origination even outside of the meditation. You'll start to recognize the sequencing of dependent origination. It just comes to you very clearly. So.
6: So I got another question that popped up in my mind. So in the case of uh, who attained higher states they can see the people their past comma and their current comma and you they can also even notice somebody are going in wrong direction mm. uh, like uh, they, probably there it can be possible that they can just judge like i mean they can see like exactly what stream they are going how they manage the judging and compassion—like—is it always come in the Oh, they of never judge.
0: One thing you have to understand: they never judge. Uh, but they—if the person is immediately about to break a precept—they do every effort to prevent them from breaking that precept. In the case of, for example, the Buddha and Angulimala, he saw that Angulimala was going to then kill his his mother, so he stepped in and he said. And he gave him the discourse. And Angulimala let go of his old ways and then joined the Sangha. So they never judge what a person is doing. But they know like, okay, this person might be going in this direction. Sometimes, like parents, they have to just allow that person to do what they're doing so that they learn from that experience. You can't always prevent them from doing what they want to do.
6: And uh, I have some friends, like very good friends, but they kind of they break precepts. Uh, Like especially alcohol, which is kind of common in the society right now. Uh, Like I can't say that you don't drink, but I can just he he knows that I don't uh, I don't recommend to drink. Mm. Like this is these kind of situations are quite common and. How, how to, like, help other people. <laughs> like, if, if you say that I don't want to be with you, be with you, if you don't...
0: You know how, uh, when somebody goes to buy cigarettes and they have those pictures of, uh, <laughs> you know, lung cancer and all of that? Just carry cards with you. And when they're about to order a drink, just give them that one card. and Take a look at this. This is what happens when you drink alcohol. No, I'm I'm just joking. But... You know, that's their choice. That's their choice. You could always say, hey, maybe you want to not drink. You know, just suggest it a couple of times. That's the part of the beautiful friendship, Kalyana Mitta, is you try to help them out of breaking precepts. But ultimately, the choice always is theirs. Yeah, and of course, send them to Deer Park. (laughs) (laughs) This retreat is sponsored by Deer Park.
10: (laughs) Can one radiate emptiness?
0: Uh, No. Emptiness is a quality of the mind. Emptiness is basically just, it's, it's a quality of existence in general. So, the experience of emptiness can lead to equanimity, which you can radiate the opeka. But emptiness itself is just it's apparent once it becomes apparent.
10: Also um, In my meditation, um, the six Rs are going well, and uh, and I come back but sometimes I don't know what my object is because I'm in nothingness. Hmm. So what, um, I don't know where to land. What, what would you suggest?
0: I think if you just stay uh, there and allow the mind to just rest in that, that's fine too. So don't have to radiate anything, just let the mind rest in that awareness.
10: So in that, in that space, I'm finding that actually distractions happen a lot more.
0: Yes. Oh. So when that happens, that's where you start to develop the disenchantment and dispassion, which is like you just stay in the, aware, you just stay in the awareness of, of that. And whatever is happening, even if it's like attacking you from seemingly the front, just don't do anything. Just allow your mind to just stay with the with the, the mind, you know, with the awareness. And eventually, the distractions will start to fade away. As soon as your attention goes to the distraction, or the series of distractions, it will fuel it, which will cause it to erupt even more and more. The other thing you could do is add tranquility. Just In the beginning, just add a little tranquility. Just have some more relaxation. And then just relax into the awareness. And that's it. And then from there, that develops disenchantment and dispassion naturally.
10: So, um, tranquility um, for you is, or whatever for, definition is, relax.
0: Pasadi, which quiet. is just to relax. Pasadi, which is tranquility, yeah. like tranquilizing, to just soften things.
3: How about uh, adding a little bit of uh, anapanasati instructions, like breathing out, uh, uh, tranquilize the mental or bodily formations?
0: You're like, saying as a... Yeah,
3: in, in twinning, in whenever the instructions or the agitation, the energy is too much, to actively breathe out and to tranquilize. No. no.
0: Unless you're doing anapanasati from the get-go but don't do it as a practice because you're going to equate the process of relaxation you're going to tie the process of relaxation to your breath and the mind then becomes dependent upon the breath you want to have the mind like independent Mm -hmm. let the mind be self-driving self-sufficient in being able to do things through its own intentions Mm -hmm. so a process of just relaxing a process of pulling back the attention, that should be enough for that moment. And then making sure that the mind just rests in the awareness and doesn't do anything.
2: So I have a couple of questions. does radiating uh, um, uh, loving kindness to the spiritual friend who might be inclined to alcohol would that help? That's
0: it. Could it could? I mean, you're. I mean, if you're just sending loving kindness to them, that's really nice. As to whether that changes them from drinking alcohol, you'd have to see.
2: To have the space to reconsider, whatever, or take a yeah. pause. Yeah. Yeah. But that
0: always lies in their own huh. right. awareness. Right.
2: The next question is, uh, you were speaking about astrology. Does it become invalid at some point during our uh, progress in meditation?
0: Yes, because, uh, you know, at some point, uh, of course, that's the thing you have to understand. Astrology, to try to predict the future, implies that your life is sort of predetermined in that way. But your choices always change, which means the karmic streams that branch out will also change. So to a certain extent, you, stop le- you start letting go of, you know, like, consulting astrology and things like that. You just do whatever is happening. Accept everything as is. I just
1: What are your thoughts on Reiki?
0: Reiki? Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. (laughs)
1: Yeah, but, uh, how, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool, yes, for sure. Could you, like, expand the coolness
2: a little bit?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if a person wants to cultivate the ability to do Reiki and stuff, by all means, that's fine. It's helping another person, Right?
7: parroting it, he says that you have to be careful because you are altering that person's karma.
2: Hmm.
7: So, and you know, you should be also sometimes uh, willing to take their karma. To, to what extent, we don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that because I, I would say, you know, when it comes to karma, karma is always changing, and the thing about karma is. Karma, it can change dependent upon a person's choice, dependent upon outside environment, dependent upon climate, dependent upon a person's illness or non-illness, depending upon a lot of different things. Whether it alters their karma, you couldn't really know un- unless you actually saw their karma. But as to take on another one's, another's karma and, and things like that, I think it's just a process, again, of dedicating merit. That's it. If you look at it in that light, then it's just like, whatever wholesome deeds I've done, may the, may the merit of that go to that person. That's it. Pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool.
9: <laughs> Can you explain what is compassion exactly?
0: Yeah. Compassion is... It's a mindset... And compassion is the ability to recognize the suffering in another being because you understand your own suffering. And then not having sympathy for them, but a level of empathy. That level of empathy is basically understanding their suffering because you've had some kind of suffering similar to theirs. But beyond that, compassion is also... Wishing them to be free of suffering. One, mentally. But being able to facilitate the ability for them to come out of their suffering. But I also talked about how you don't want to do it in such a way that you become a crutch. And then they always depend on you whenever they're suffering to be like, okay, show me what I should do and then you you have to do the actions. Empower them to take the actions to come out of their suffering. Whatever that means when we say empower. Give them the tools, give them the information, be a support system, be there just listening. The process of just listening to a person is compassion and action. Many people just want to speak and be heard. If you can listen to a person without trying to figure out an answer and just listen, that's also compassion. We're radiating the wish for beings to be free of suffering. So empathetic joy or mudita is basically being able to celebrate in another person's wholesome success. So that's why it's known as an antidote to jealousy and envy. When somebody becomes jealous, it's like because they, they've achieved something and now the person begrudges them for that. But mudita or empathetic joy is saying, wow, I'm genuinely happy for that person's achievement. I was talking about the other day, somebody from San Francisco, he was saying every time he sees somebody driving a really nice car or whatever it might be, the first thought that arises is, good for them. I'm so happy for them. That's empathetic joy. Being able... That is like understanding that, okay, there are beings who experience joy and you're happy for them. Connecting with their joy. Connecting with their happiness, connecting with their temporary relief from suffering or even permanent relief from suffering.
10: Um,
11: as you said, uh, Reiki interferes uh, with the karmas. So what doctors are also interfering uh, by curing the person?
0: Yes, of course. Karma. Of course. But why, why is that a problem? <laughs>
11: Yeah. How, how do we know that uh, our uh, metta is reaching to the people we are sending to?
0: we can't we don't, but there might be times where when you're sending metta like I was saying earlier, there might be times where a person thinks about you and says or calls you or sends you a whatsapp message and says I was just thinking about you
11: so first you know? thing I, tomorrow I get my It might be having iTunes. a lot of
0: messages blow up
11: <laughs> no, I'll just check if I have received messages from <laughs> Secondly, I was, uh, I was just wondering, like when I was meditating yesterday, I spoke to you about this. Uh, again and again, my mind was getting distracted. So again and again, I was using um, the six hours. So more than meditating, I was uh, using more of six hours. I mean, yeah. so uh, it, it, was it like my lack of knowledge of uh, meditation or it was ignorance or I don't no, know. No, no, I mean. no. It, it's
0: the right thing that you were doing. It's the right thing. You okay. were meditating, actually. If you were 6 r it means yeah. that you were applying right effort, you had the mindfulness to recognize that you lost it, and you came back. It might take a hundred times a minute.
11: But then I was getting uh, very uh, bored by giving 6R again and again. Not bored, but I don't know the, to use the right word. but yeah. Uh, it was bothering me again and again to use the 6 hours and yeah. then, you know.
0: Yeah. So. That time you just relax. At that point, maybe you, what happens is it could be that the mind is just 6Ring like as a preventative thing and then you just relax. Relax into the awareness. Try doing that and see what happens.
5: Thank you. You don't have to 6R every thought. You don't have to 6R every, you you every thought as long as you're still with the field of awareness. Yeah. And, uh, Sometimes people say, like, oh, it was a bad session because I, I was 6 r a lot. But if you were 6 r a lot, it's actually a good session.
0: Yeah.
9: What is restlessness? How to handle that restlessness?
0: Restlessness is basically an imbalance in energy, whether it's sloth and torpor or restlessness. Basically, restlessness means that there's too much energy in the mind. And uh, that arises because the mind is trying too hard or the mind is focusing too much. And then there's all of this agitation coming up. So when that happens, then you, like I said, pull back your attention and relax. Then you rebalance the energy so that instead of having too much energy, the energy kind of counters back to being in the middle. So if you find that happening, then all you have to do is just pull back your attention and relax. That's it. Yes, uh, restlessness can arise, again, that's the restlessness and remorse that we were talking about the other day. Restlessness in terms of anxiety about the future, remorse in terms of guilt about the past. Others?
9: Can you talk a little bit about um, karma purification and techniques of karma purification?
0: Karma is to be experienced all the time. Right now also you are experiencing karma. Your karma brought you here and karma will take you other places. Karma cannot be purified in the sense of doing sacrifices and all of these other things. Karma can be let go by understanding it as being an impersonal process and not clinging to it. Remember I was talking about in terms of hindrances old karma and new karma. Old karma is that which you inherit and now this is all old karma. If you take it personally and keep acting from there, you just add to that repository of karma. But if you want to let go of that karma, you see it for what it is, detach from it, use the six R's.
9: So all the techniques of the um for example, in Tibetan Buddhism?
0: I'm not familiar with that. What is hmm. that? Karma
10: purification.
0: How <laughs> do <laughs> you know that your karma has been purified?
10: You
2: trust.
0: <laughs> right. It, what I'm saying here is, it is a practical application using right effort to be able to let go of the the um, the ingredients for continuing that karma, which is cra- clinging, which is craving, clinging and becoming. That delineation point between old karma and new karma is the feeling and the craving. The bridge is the underlying tendency. Everything you're experiencing right now is a result of old karma. How you choose to take it will then determine whether you crave, cling, and become, which can lead to furtherance of that karma. That's the purification insofar as letting it go, letting it be as it is. In the suttas the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Path as being the path leading to the cessation of karma as well. Because when you have right speech, that doesn't create new karma. Any, any karma that leads to renewal of being. When you have right action, that doesn't lead to any new karma, to the renewal of further being. And so on and so forth. So it's seen as more of... An, a non-continuance of already old karma. There
5: was a group at the time of the Buddha that there's many suttas where the Buddha has interactions with the Jains. And the Jains held this belief that they needed to purify all of their karma, and that's how they got enlightened. And he was really hard on the Jains, actually. You don't hear the Buddha going and picking fights very often, but with the Jains, he just... He was frustrated with, or not frustrated. But <laughs> 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 oh, those darn! In in the, in the way, <laughs> in in a Buddha type of way, he was he was uh, unhappy with them because of how much suffering they were causing themselves, and that view was causing others. And that's why I asked that question. It's nothing. I'm you know yeah. maybe maybe it is purifying karma, but the question that he asked the Jains was, how do you know in this? In this balance somewhere of karma, you know this this kind of uh, piggy bank of karma. How do you know how much is left or how much you've gone through? Um, and there's another sutta where he he goes to them and he basically says, um, "So you believe that you believe <laughs> that um, you know by experiencing painful uh, feelings." that you're purifying your karma. uh And these painful feelings come from previous bad actions, right? And they say, yes. And he said, well, you must have done something really terrible to be born a Jane then. <laughs> because they're causing themselves pain.
0: Go of the pain.
5: To, in theory, let go of pain that yeah. they caused themselves in the past. So all of that's just to say that the view that you need to somehow like purify yourself is uh, you know explicitly uh, denounced by the Buddha over and over again.
0: If you read the chapter on karma, I don't know how far you've gotten in Mind Without Craving book, but there are certain suttas that it talks about, which you can go to and you can see where the Buddha talks about how to deal with karma. And uh, there is some, some description of karma and rebirth in that chapter, so you can have a look and review it.
10: Um, uh, speaking of purification uh, no um, um, I wanted to actually talk about restlessness Uh, I found today I had an insight that once um, sila is pure which personally I feel like I am working on purifying there's a level of purification that is happening here, and um, so restlessness still came up, and I realized uh, it was uh, an investigated thought. So um, so restlessness can still come even after um, Sheila is pure, and uh, it, it, the thought was, oh, I'm not good enough for this or that. And, I, and then I thought, realized, oh, is that true? You know, I get to investigate that. Is that true or not? So, um, I just wanted to share that about restlessness.
0: Yeah. And that's the other thing you have to understand. Even after you purify sila, you can still experience the hindrances because they're, they're momentum from previous choices. So, like in the same way, if somebody becomes fully realized, they still have to experience the consequences of their previous actions prior to full awakening. So, yeah, I mean, if that if that helps in terms of understanding how this thought process arose, and then letting go of the of the the cause of the restlessness, then that lets go of it. Yeah, just you
10: know, I mean, once I saw that, it was like, you know, yeah. six are that right. But
0: um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's good. Pretty
1: cool. <laughs> <Word of the laughs> retreat. One b- basic question. Uh, could you please uh, uh, enlist in uh, whatever Janik stage one is and uh, he should radiate conventionally like uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, up to 8.5? You want me to review the man, levels? Just, uh, man, uh, is it possible to... Man, uh, taking our attention in all uh, directions yeah. is uh, possible or required in
10: which stage, man, like that. Oh, you could
0: do it from the 1st John onwards, that's fine up too. Up to... Up to 8th. Uh, uh, eighth. Eighth, in the 8th you don't do any radiating. You just uh, that, That's what, man, yeah. Six, seven, eight.
1: 7, uh, 8, we were just discussing yeah. and having a, a issue. Yeah.
0: By the time you're in the eighth, then you're just with quiet mind, no radiating going on. Oh, seventh, in radi- yeah, seventh you radiate equanimity up to seventh.
5: Okay. you go ahead, but I was okay. just saying, uh,
6: does a place of birth or stay or home, mm-hmm. the environment of the home, impact people's lives?
0: Impact people's lives? That's no. actually also a karmic, uh, karmic. Uh, uh, fruition, right? Where, you, where you're where you born and where you live, what kind of people you interact with, what kind of parents you have, what kind of upbringing you have. That's also all old karma.
6: Because uh, in Hindu mythology, in some places it has been written that your place of birth is already predetermined
1: or The home in which you are going to be born, your karma has been written from that home, the the way the home has been formed.
0: Right. So the idea is that certain choices that you make in your previous life can lead you to being born in a certain kind of family, in a certain kind of home or lifestyle. We are what? Confirming the social, economical status of the people. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, when you're saying confirming, how do you how do you mean? I mean,
2: it is out of their stock of
0: a Right, exactly. Right. Right. So the the another thing, I, I know you've been waiting, but let me just... Yeah, I think... But the, the lesson to be learned about that is also this. There's like, the Buddha talked about like uh, four entry points and four exit points. In other words, a person comes into a life where it's very wholesome, but they can take that wholesome life and make it unwholesome and exit out unwholesome. For example, somebody's born in a very uh, rich household. But then they get influenced and uh, decide that they want to use their wealth for unwholesome means. And they can tarnish their wealth and create all kinds of situations for themselves. Likewise, somebody can be in an unwholesome state. That is to say, maybe in a state of deprivation, in a state where things are not good. But that inspires them to lead a wholesome life, lead them out of, let's say, poverty or whatever that might be, and get inspired to uplift others in their community. So that's from the, from the, let's say, I don't want to use the word negative, but you know, something that's not so well to something that is better. And then there's also somebody who is in a better state and then improves that state. And somebody who's in a terrible state and continues to, or worse, worsens that state. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is, yeah, fine. It could be a confirmation of how the economic status. But what you choose to do with that, that's important. Always. What do you do with the karma that you have now in the present moment?
4: Yeah. So on the same topic of karma, I mean, I think there's a really good sutta, you mentioned it just a moment ago, Angulimala. Yes. Um, he became an arahant, alright, when he met the Buddha, running around and stuff and everything else, kind of cool story. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's very cool. Um, at the end of the day, um, he was an Arahat, has the robes on, people were still throwing stuff at him. Yeah. He was picking up all that old karma right. that he had done from taking people's fingers off or whatever. From what I understand, he was even like uh, actually a pretty good guy before that. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you actually see that there's no purification even in becoming an Arahant, you're yeah. still going to pick up some of your old karma right. based on what you did.
0: A Moglana is a prime example of this as well. I often quote Moglana's example, which is actually where in a previous life, at some point, he killed his parents. Then the the immediately effective karma, there are five immediately effective karmas that lead you to a state of hell. One of them is killing... You know, your mother, another is killing your father, another is killing an arhat. another one is shedding the blood of a Buddha with the desire to harm them and then creating a schism. So in doing that, it led him to an immediately effective karma of experiencing a hell realm. Fine. But the remnant of that karma was still there to the extent that even after lifetimes, the effect of that was, even after he became an arhat. He got beaten up by a rival community, which then he tried to evade them using his psychic powers. Eventually that failed him, and they beat him up till he died.
5: And even the Buddha had back problems. It would, the Buddha would take rest and lie down because his back was hurting. And that was apparently from breaking someone's back in a past life. He
0: was a, he was a wrestler, and his uh, famous move was the backbreaker. <laughs>
10: <laughs>
0: no, this is a this is more like a commentary, yeah. I
4: know.
0: <laughs> <Jataka> tales, <right? laughs> this is Jalaka Tales, I think, yeah. But how Mogarana was so good to be able to right or left hand of the Yes. Well that was the This is a hopeful thing, right? This shows that your karma is changeable, and you, there's always hope for people, for anyone. Even Devadatta, right, who created a schism. Later on, they say it's said that he's going to become a, a Pacheka Buddha. Or even uh, Ajatasattu, who killed his own father, it says that later on he'll become a Pacheka Buddha. So yeah. I don't think anyone has... Well, someone has attempted it, like Devadatta, but so far I don't think there has been any success.
8: So this is a personal question, so you can skip it if if you
0: don't... I'm skipping it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, ask the question. Okay.
8: Uh, So, in the morning, if you go to take a shower and there's no hot water, do you hesitate, or do you just take the shower with the cold water anyway?
0: What I actually do is, is if, if it's like a really hot country, like Cambodia and stuff, I take cold showers. If it's cool, like over here, I'll take a warm shower, but I'll always finish it with a cold shower.
8: Okay, so, so you don't really have to exercise awakened powers to... To
4: do that, I see. I just turned the knob. That's
8: okay. it. <laughs> okay, and then uh, so, so this this was a uh, this is a follow up on my question from yesterday. M- maybe you answered it, but maybe I missed it. Uh, what what is it that makes the cessation for stream entry easier than that of anagami or or a hut?
0: First time around, it's always easy because you don't know what to expect. Then once you know how the pathway is, then you kind of re- recognize the signposts. So it's arguably more difficult the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time around because uh, you, know the, you know the passage. So there you need even more disenchantment and dispassion.
8: Different levels of letting go required at each.
0: There's uh, different levels of letting go, but again, they're facilitated by how much you six are and what you six are. In other words, for the anagami, if you want to get into anagami, you have to be able to recognize when sensual craving arises. You have to be able to recognize when aversion arises, and let them go until you stop experiencing them. In the case of arahatship, you have to let go of any restlessness that arises. Let go of any kind of conceit that arises. Let go of craving for jhana, craving for uh, formless attainments, uh, becoming more attentive, uh, attentive, becoming more aware of... So lack of mindfulness, you have to let go of that.
7: This is a follow-up question on that from Alice, Melbourne, Australia. Hmm. She asked me to ask yeah. you this. Uh, you know what emphasis would you put on fruition as another peak experience? Because the commentaries uh, or the abhidhamma say uh, you know you, you need like eight moments of uh, cessation to get to arahatship. But imagine uh, you know a person listening to a discourse of the Buddha and then becomes an arahat you know okay, okay. personally I feel it's problematic to have eight moments of boom, 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 right? And then, okay, fine, I'm still standing. (laughs) So is it more of a commentarial thing that they took the fruition to another uh, level or how do you see this?
0: I would say, having not really read it for myself, I'll I'll explain it. So, I don't exactly know the full context of whether it's in the Abhidhamma or whether it's in the commentary, but there have been people who've had, like, 24 cessations. By now, they should be, like, a triple araha or something. (laughs) So, the idea is, the way I look at it is, It's more about what happens in terms of what you do to keep letting go that leads to the cessation, not the cessation itself.
7: So what about the fruition?
0: So uh, when you talk, again, going back to the fruition, what was the question? Is
7: it another peak experience?
0: So uh, one of the things I have noticed with people, and this is my own experience with interviewing people, is that the fruition, you will know it's a fruition when you for sure see the links of dependent origination.
7: At another cessation experience.
0: Right. Post-cessation experience.
7: So how about, uh, you know, uh, let me give this analogy. You know, you listen to a lecture for three hours uh, and then you go back home, you do some homework, and then you say, hey, okay, that's what the lecture was all about. It's that application of that Yes, experience that you had in those three hours, uh, and then the, and then you, you just find and like, then it just all yeah, clicks. You, you, you just yeah. get it.
0: Yeah, that's fruition,
7: right? Um, so it doesn't have to be another cessation experience. Would you say that? Uh,
0: well, I'll give you an example of somebody that it happened at the San Francisco retreat. This was. Uh, Uh, earlier this year and uh, this person um, had been in the Dhamma for many, many years and uh, he just didn't really he he just wasn't getting to the right path and the right way of doing things and he started doing this practice and every time he did this practice his arm was hurting his leg was hurting Mm -hmm. finally he was in a sling Mm -hmm. like he he was like torturous for him Mm -hmm. And uh, one day in the interview he's, he came and he was just so happy and everything. And I said, you've had an experience. And uh, he explained what happened and he said, yeah, this is what happened. And okay, great. And then he was listening to uh, Chachachak Sutta, the six sets of six. And so he came back and he said, you know, the first day yesterday when you told me this, I didn't believe you. I was like, okay, maybe he's just saying that, but... While I was listening to the Sutta, something happened where I had to, after the end of the reading, I had to just go to my room. And as I was going to my room, there was a blackout. Mm. And I experienced this amazing joy and everything just made sense. And he no longer had his arm in a sling and it was like the pain that he was experiencing, Mm. it became pleasure. Mm. There was joy in that experience. So, yes, cessation will happen and then there will be a fruition. And sometimes the cessation is so small, I see. you might not even recognize it. I see. There have been people who have had cessation in their sleep. Mm. And then when they wake up, they experience immense joy and then everything makes sense to them.
7: Right. So that makes a lot more sense. Right? It doesn't have to be another wow moment. Yeah. You know, it could just be a tiny click
8: what the links of dependent origination look like, because, you know, I've heard it described as flickering in, in, the, in the eye or in the ear, but there's just like so much flickering and...
0: No, 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 that flickering in the eye and the ear are mainly the infinite consciousnesses that we're seeing. But dependent origination, I'm not going to tell you guys what it looks like. <laughs> okay. okay. You have to tell me, or you have to tell a teacher and then they will be able to confirm the experience for you. Otherwise, you guys are going to be looking for it and be like, yeah, I saw it.
3: You said, right before you answered that question, you said something about you believe that it's more due to the the
0: practice leading up to this situation? Yes. Yeah, in other words, like, like I said for the Anagami, right, they have to let go of uh, craving, sensual craving and aversion. Like in life, so in day-to-day life, whenever you see sensual craving arising, you have to 6R that, practice. be able to keep practicing that so that that uh, translates into when in a post-cessation experience the mind naturally lets go of that fetter. You've built that natural tendency yeah. That habit. It's a momentum. That's, what, that's the cumulative effect of the practice. It leads to that breaking of the fetter.
5: I will now summarize the Dhamma talk. Observe and 6R.
0: Thank you, Venerable Matananda. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes.
10: Say for instance um,
9: whatever circumstances you were in you never came back to a retreat maybe you even never meditated ever again but you worked on your ethics Mm -hmm. could you still attain an attainment?
0: No, you still need to practice You you still need to practice because it's sila samadhi panya you see the sila, the ethics part is there that's great now, here's another thing to understand. If you've had a path and you don't practice, you will still have a fruition, but it will happen at the time of your death. But if you want to get to the next path, let's say, then you need to repeat that whole process consistently.
9: So we'll see you next year
0: you <laughs> <laughs> Or just keep practicing. That's it. Just keep practicing. All right, is that it? May suffering ones be suffering free, and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation.